Well, we're back into the Gospel of Luke, so as you're sitting down, why don't you grab a Bible and turn with me to Luke chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible, there's some place underneath the seats there. If you don't own one for yourself, we encourage you to take that, please. And uh, if you don't have a Bible open, you might be a little lost this morning. We're going to be really in this whole chapter, uh, Lord willing, the entire time. So pray for those that are working in Children's Church, because this might be a long one here today. When the great American storyteller Mark Twain was asked who he thought was the best storyteller of all time, he answered Jesus Christ. And then they asked which is the greatest story he ever told. His reply is the story of the prodigal son, what we read here in Luke 15. Charles Dickens called this parable the greatest short story ever spoken. And as we come to to Luke 15, we we come to one of the most popular stories in our world, The description, the prodigal son, is used so frequently in our culture uh, that most of you, I'm sure, and people that live around you know what we're talking about. From athletes who who leave a team one season and then come back the next team, the prodigal returns to a spouse who's left and comes back to the marriage. If you were to ask your neighbors this week, tell me about the prodigal son, they're probably going to be able to share with you some of the details of this story. But this parable, the prodigal son, is just the second half of the chapter. It's it's a scene that's most used in music and movies. If you you were to trace, and I didn't have time this week, a a lot of movies that were written and filmed in the last few decades, the, the, the premise of it really fits around this story. There's much art that's been done. One of the, some of the most prolific artists in the history have painted the scene of, of the son coming home to the father. And we'll look at that in verses 17 through 24. But this story, this, this, this chapter doesn't end at verse 24 with the celebration of the younger brother coming home. Most people, if you ask your neighbor, probably think it does. They, they think it's done. That's the end of the chapter. He moves into the next one. But that's not what we find. In fact, when I searched for songs or stories, they never finished the parable. Most songs just end at verse 24 of the, of the prodigal coming home. They, they stop short. And, and as we've made our way through Luke's gospel, the punchline of this parable is after verse 24. Verses 25 through 32, that's where most of the meat is for, for understanding this chapter. And we find verses 1 through 24 beautiful because it is beautiful. We don't have to be ashamed of that. It is beautiful. A lost sheep, a lost coin, a sinner who leaves and lives their life on their own terms and then comes to realize their need for the Father and comes with humility and repentance. It's beautiful and it resonates with, with so many people and how they view their life even. It's, it's what so many people hope and pray for their own kids who once attended church, who, who once confessed the belief in Jesus but now haven't lived that way. And so I don't want to dismiss the significance of the younger son. It, it is important But that's not the main point of the chapter. That's not even the main thrust of what Jesus is making, okay? And we want to be in a hurry. I I understand this. We want to be in a hurry when we read the Bible. But we won't grow if we're just coming to the Bible for a verse here or a verse there for a little spiritual pick-me-up. No, we need to stop. And we need to read and reread and reread again and ponder the Word of God. I don't know if you know this, but when I start a week before I'm going to preach, I read the passage over and over and over. That's how I understand the word, and i got to read the context. And, and you need to do that as Bible students. 
Be so saturated in the word, you just continue to read the word, it'll, it'll inform what it means. You need to stop and soak in the word. Stop and think. So why did Jesus share these three parables together? What was he trying to, to teach us here in Luke 15? There's, there's much to consider for us as readers of the Bible for this entire chapter and seeing why Luke places this story at this time, sharing about these parables. And I hope to unpack that this morning. If you remember a number of chapters back, I, I made mention of this, and I'll continue to make mention of this. In Luke 9, 51, Luke has this, this phrase, Jesus sets his face towards Jerusalem, and it's, a, it's another set of the story. Now, Jesus has, has been sharing before that, and now he's going to go towards the cross. He's going towards death. And then the weeks following that, we, we have seen this in the weeks prior, he, he turns his attention to the Pharisees and the scribes. And along the way, he would preach to the crowds. He would teach what you should expect in a life following him. And he would announce, as we saw last week, this great meal coming. And all were invited. But as we looked at last week, the religious leaders didn't want to join. They didn't want what Jesus was offering. They're lost. But God had sent his son to seek the lost and call them to repentance. And so here's the main idea of this morning. I don't have an outline. It's just going to follow this main idea here, okay? God seeks the lost and he rejoices over the found and so should we. God seeks the lost and he rejoices over the found and so should we. So let's look at the first part of that. God seeks the lost. Look at Luke chapter 15, verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. As we see again in Luke 15, these religious leaders are all over him. They believe that because he spent time with tax collectors and sinners, that he is, is somehow endorsing their lifestyle, that Jesus is promoting their lifestyle, but he's seeking the lost. This phrase, this man receives sinners and eats with them, should be said with joy. Instead, Luke says they're grumbling. They're complaining about Jesus. But friends, it should be read with joy. I mean, read this with joy. This man receives sinners and he eats with them. Their grumbling is our gospel. And what better news in the world than Jesus receives sinners? That's what gets me up in the morning, right? That's what fuels me and gets me going. This is good news. And for them, it wasn't good news at all. Because it didn't line up with their wicked core beliefs. For them, the, God's kingdom was for the, the elite. For those that just would, would perform. And these people didn't fit into that. And, and in so doing, they didn't understand God at all. See, the real scandal was that all the leaders of Israel, these teachers of the law, were considered under-shepherds of the great shepherd, God. But they're failing in their task. Just as their fathers of old had done with Ezekiel prophesying against them. One wonders if some of them did not recall Ezekiel's prophecy, at least after hearing what Jesus continues to say about them. Listen to Ezekiel 34. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel, prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, ah, oh, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? And then verse 4, the weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought. 
And then he continues, thus says the Lord God, behold, I'm against the shepherds and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. For thus says the Lord God, behold, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they've been scattered in the day of clouds and thick darkness. That's Ezekiel 34, 1 through 12. He's saying, I will do this. And the main thrust of Ezekiel's prophecy is clear. Since the under shepherds of Israel had failed, God himself would be that shepherd. He would go and rescue his people. This is why Jesus came. The under-shepherds could care less, but the shepherd could care not more. He cared for his sheep. And so he launches now Jesus into this parable back in Luke 15, verse 3. So he told him a parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulder, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So either in this parable, the shepherd is foolish, or the shepherd loves the sheep so much that he's willing to risk everything to go find him, including his own life. I'm sure you know, sheep are stupid animals. They can get themselves in all sorts of trouble real quick. And here we have the shepherd leaving the 99 to search for the one that's lost. And do you see the reaction? What's the reaction when he finds the one's lost? He celebrates. Some of you Christians, that makes you uncomfortable, right? You don't like to celebrate stuff. Just drab all the time. Parties are bad. That's sinful. Maybe you've been taught. But again, in the Bible, it continues to come back. We're going to see joy and rejoice over and over in this chapter. And what does he do? He celebrates, he rejoices. And it's not just by himself. It's not a one-person party. No, he calls his friends and his neighbors to join in. And then, and then, Luke, or the, and then Jesus shares the next parable that's quite similar. Look at verse 8. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. One coin was called a a drachma. It represented one day's wages. So this woman loses a full day's wages. And so it makes sense why she would go to such great lengths to search her house. And when something is so valuable, you'll do anything to find it. And the punch of both of these parables is how immediately relatable they are to our daily lives. The shepherd and the woman were were not rich people. Sheep was costly. This this coin was a full day's wages. These people are of modest means. They're like us. They're important things to find. And they both kept going until they found what was lost. And the picture is painted so clearly for us. This This is what God is like. God is searching through Jesus Christ for the lost. He didn't come to find all the good people and just hang out with them. He didn't find the religious leaders to pat them on the back. Jesus came 
to seek and save the lost. You know, Jesus came to earth today. Where do you think you would find him? Where would he hang out? Remember earlier, Jesus taught the, that the well, the healthy, don't need a doctor. But who? Who, who need a doctor? The sick. Right? When you go to the doctor's office, it's not full of just healthy people just waiting. No, it's full of sick people who need help, who need healing. Jesus came for the sick. Jesus came to seek the lost. And he rejoices over the found. You see that? He rejoices over the found. That's second here. Friends, have you ever lost something really valuable before? I'm sure some of you do that weekly. I don't mean that as a jab. I, I just know that's possible in a group this size. Everyone's looking at each other. Spouses are, don't do that here, okay? Talk about it in the car afterwards. I hate losing things. It's my pride. I know it, and I'm working at it, okay? But I hate losing things. So right after we got married, um, you know, I, I had the designated place for car keys because when I want to leave, I want the keys. And, and my wife didn't lose them, but I just didn't know where they're at. And so I had to have a spot. So if you come to my house, I have a spot. It's always there. If you don't put my keys back, I'm going to let you know. I don't want to lose my keys. Maybe you as parents have had that frightening experience, though, with your kids of being separated from your child. And it's frightening. It's truly frightening to be at a store or at the fair, and you have a kid next to you, and then you turn and they're gone. You remember the feelings of that? You're just, you're just gripped with this anxiety. Like, I have to find them. You don't just say, I'm going to go on the next ride. You, you search. They're valuable. You have to explain to someone what happened. And you go and you go and you're frantic and you find them. And then when you find them, how is your response? It's like, oh, yeah, great. I'm glad you're here. No, you, you embrace them, right? You grab them and you, you pick them up. Because what was lost is now found and then you rejoice over what's been found. Did you happen to read this last week or a week and a half or so ago of a, of a man and a wife in China whom they lost their son 24 years ago? He was abducted. Did you read that? The story is amazing. The video of it is amazing. 1997, when this boy was two and a half years old, was abducted outside his home, according to the South China Morning Post. And for 24 years, the father, who's now 51, he searched all over China. They says he traveled more than 300,000 miles on a motorcycle in hopes that he could be re reunited with his son. He was desperate to find his son. And after 24 years, they have now video of this. Just Google it. This emotional moment, which is captured by their state media, and the father and mother are just bawling over their son. 24 years later, that they're now reunited, and they embrace him. The mom says, my baby, you came back. Can you imagine the response, the joy that would happen? You, you want to, I'm, I'm certain they had a party to invite all their friends. He was gone, but now he's back. He would be overjoyed. And that's just like this passage, these parables. That's what Jesus is trying to drive home. And when he comes home, look at verse 6, when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, I found my sheep that was lost. And then just verse 7, Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner, 
Over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need a repentance. And, and for that, Jesus is referring to the Pharisees' analysis of them own selves, not, not God's analysis. God knows they need to repent. It's their analysis. They think they don't need to repent. And then the woman, how does she respond? When she's found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me. And he says, just so you know, there's more joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Friends, we learn something about heaven in these passages. Heaven rejoices when one sinner repents. It rejoices as joy. Joy is mentioned again and again. This is a chapter about joy, about rejoicing. Nothing, absolutely nothing prompts a party in heaven like the, the turning of a soul from sin to Christ. Someone who was once lost and is now found. And Jesus is showing here his deity. He's telling him again that he is God. He's saying, I know things that you don't know. How would, he, how would he ever know that angels throw parties when sinners repent unless Jesus told us so? And it's as if we're to ask Jesus, how do you know they celebrate in heaven? And he's like, I was there. I know things. I've come from heaven. I know what it's like. I know what happens when people come and they turn in faith to, to follow God. And we see so clearly in both these, these first two parables that the person who is searching is more willing to be found and to find what they've lost than the thing that is willing to be found. Jesus is far more willing to save sinners than sinners are willing to be saved. Are you willing to be saved, friend? Some of you here are maybe afraid to be found, afraid to repent. And if you are, you need to reread this section and even follow with me the rest of the chapter here because you need to cast your shame aside. See, what the world mocks at in repentance, the heavens and angels rejoice over. The world may mock you for repenting of your sins and following Jesus, but the heavens and the angels rejoice over it. The change that this world calls foolishness is the change that fills heaven. Heaven rejoices over every single repentant sinner. And Christians should rejoice too. But Pharisees don't rejoice. They complain. See, God seeks the lost and he rejoices over the found. And so should we. We should seek sinners too. That's the third and last point. We move to the third parable. This is the bulk of the chapter, the most widely read of Jesus' parables. The story is usually coined as the prodigal son. We've already looked at the lost sheep, the lost coin, but the rest of the chapter is really about two sons. We better titled two lost sons. And first, we learn of the younger son. Look at verse 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to the father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. What we learn here when we come to this is the son is hating every minute of living at home. And there's only thing that the son doesn't hate, and it's his father's money. The younger son's desire to have all would be rightful at his father's death. But to ask for it before it's just, it's gruesome to think of 
his view of his father. It would be rude to demand your inheritance before death in any society, but it's especially harsh in this culture. The father does it. And when he's done, the younger son is holding at least one-third, most likely half of all the, the estate. And then he steps into freedom. Look at verse 13. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. It seems possible, we don't know, it seems possible he picked up every tab at every event, every meal, every party he was at. Jesus gives us no details on how he spent his money. Was it within days or months or years that it passed? Did he ration his money to some sort of budget, or did he frequently spend it on cheap booze and cheap women? We don't know. In the verse 14, when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So we find he's, in, he's broke now. A famine's come without any warning. And my guess is that he's all by himself at this point. All those friends that lived off his money by reckless living, they have seemed to be spent too. They're gone. Friends, if you live for yourself, you'll soon live by yourself. It doesn't seem like he has any friends left in the world. They're all left. Friends, this is, this is what living apart from Jesus Christ looks like from the vantage point of heaven. God the Father watches his rich but rebellious children squander his love and riches as they run from him to the far country of sin. Sinners want all the goodness of God's creation and all the enjoyment of God's blessings, but they don't want God. They don't understand his fatherhood for them, and they refuse his love, and they run. Friends, life apart from God is really a slow kind of death. It's tragic. Apart from God, we are living to die. But repentance is dying to live. It is dying to self that now allows us to find life in Christ. In verse 15, so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him to the fields to feed pigs, and he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. What we find here is he, he, he couldn't find a job, so he found a job feeding pigs, which in itself would have been humiliating. And, and he's still hungry. He looks at the food and the pods, the carob pods that used to feed animals, and, and at times poor people were forced to eat those. He, he was so hungry, he looked at that. He, he needed something, some, some kind of sustenance. It's amazing how, how food is a powerful tool for us to, to thrust our mind backwards into memories. Memories from a meal. Let's see, his growling in his stomach caused him to think back of how, how much he really had at his father's house. In verse 17, when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. One of the greatest abilities we have as humans is the ability to deceive ourselves, to rationalize, to make up excuses and convince ourselves that we're okay. Some of us continue to delude ourselves, postponing the painful moments of honest self-evaluation for years. People can live decades in this deceitful delusion that we're okay. We, we prayed a prayer years ago and that was enough. And I know my life hasn't borne any fruit, but it's okay. 
and we don't concern ourselves with any conviction of sin anymore. Instead, we, we polish the spiritual monuments that we've erected to prove to ourselves that we're fine, that we're good, that we're okay, that we don't really need to repent. We sin. Sure, everyone sins, but, but I'm okay. I don't have to read my Bible anymore. I don't have to pray. I don't, I don't really have to go to church. I can live disconnected from God and from God's people. I can just watch online later. And you can live for years and years and never have the kind of awakening that we read here. But here the, the light switch is flipped on and he comes to his senses. See, a man cannot repent unless he sees the insanity of his sin in light of God's goodness. And what we have here is the younger brother who wakes up. He's no longer asleep to his sin. He sees it now. He, he knows now he needs to repent. And he says, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? He, he sees he sees how good his father is, and he knows it's true. And then in verse 18, look at verse 18. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, you need to pay attention to this. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. He, he rehearses. He's already, he's already realized. He sees the goodness of his father and his wickedness, and he knows what he's going to say. And the younger son's confession of his complete unworthiness prepares us to marvel at his father's mercy and grace when he is welcomed in. I mean, do you understand the significance of his stated confession? You have to remember, this is Jesus' parable. These are Jesus' words. So this is God's view of what confession and repentance should sound like and what it should look like. If you're wondering what, what God thinks of confession, Read these verses again. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. This is not a sentimental remorse. There is no attempt to self-justify. There's no negotiation. There's no excuses. When he returns to his father, as we'll see, he comes with a clear understanding of personal guilt and a humble awareness of his own ability to help himself. He needs help. And he comes repenting, turning from his former way and turning to his father. See, repentant people plead only for a servant's place. Repentant people would easily leave their sins for the lowest place in the kingdom. Repentant people are repelled by their sin and drawn to God. Repentance is beautiful because it finds God is beautiful. And the story of the younger brother is a story of repentance. Then in verse 20, he rose and came to his father. I can only imagine how much time the father spent looking out into the distance, hoping that he could see his son one day. How many hours did he spend on that porch waiting for this moment? 
How many sleepless nights, how many dreams possibly that seemed real in his mind only to wake up to realize that it was just a dream that he's not back? How many meals did he sit down just wanting, desiring that his son would be there to enjoy that meal with him? No one prepares a person for how hard it is to have a child. You know, right after they're born, our hearts are tied to them. And sometimes children walk out. And we long for the good things for them. Where they're in pain and they suffer. And we suffer with them. I never understood that fully. I'm a better pastor because I have kids. Because I never understood how truly parents truly love and want to sacrifice and give for their kids until we see this. I've given this away. I've got a few copies here, but there's a book called Letting Go. We had uh, the, the author at our church a couple years ago. I've got a number of copies. It just kind of helps you understand. It's, if you're in the process, I know there are some of you here that are in the thick of this with your kids or, or someone else, a spouse possibly, but to be able to release them, allow God to work in that situation and wait on him, I, I think this book, and you can come up and get a copy, would be a help to you. But we come, you know, to this situation, and the younger brother here, he changes his mind, not simply because he's in a bad and a hard situation, but of his unrelenting memories of his home, his father, of the goodness of his dad. He wanted to be with his father. That's what's driving him. He had forgot a lot, I'm sure, but he never forgot his father's love. And he decided it was better to be a servant in his father's house than to stay where he was. Coming back to verse 20. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. In this culture, they would wear long robes, careful to follow all certain of customs and protocols. But it seems that he throws off all these hindrances and and runs to his sons. He he hikes up his robe and, and takes off. He doesn't sit back. You need to notice he doesn't sit back with arms folded, just waiting for him to come up the road. He's not standing there preparing how he's going to chastise his son. That's not what we view here. It's not a rehearsed rebuke that he's ready to just unleash on him. No, he runs to him. He embraces him and he kisses him. To to kiss someone in that time was not just a sign of affection, but it was a sign of forgiveness. And the the word compassion here speaks of an internal feeling in the stomach. The stomach was where the first century Jews understood where emotions came from. It was welling up so strong in him. And and here, here is where the gospel defies every human expectation. And we think in our world and how we function that the son is going to be chastised. Oh, you're back now. Did you run out of money? Now you want me? You know, we think that the father would have been really generous to agree to the suggestion. Just hear him out. Let's hear him out. See what he wants. Oh, you want the lowest spot? Yeah, you can have the lowest spot. Nope, I gave it. You're done. You're cut off. You need to leave. I mean, you spent all the inheritance. And it would seem that maybe he just, you're going to work it off now. You're going to work off what you've done. But the father in this story crushes all of earthly expectations. 
You know, we, we, we read just a minute ago, the younger son had a planned confession in verses 18 and 19. And he begins to share that. Look at verse 21. And the son said to the father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said, the father doesn't even let him finish. He's got more to confess. The father doesn't let him. He says to his servants, he's not even going to have the discussion anymore. He's forgiven. Bring quickly the best robe, verse 22, and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. The father won't hear any more. So full and free is the forgiveness of the father that he will have no delay in restoring the son. And what does he give him? Look, there's three things here. Let's quickly go through this. First is the robe. Not just any robe, but he says the best robe. In the ancient Near East, the ceremonial robe, the best robe was the mark of honor. And he was treating him as a guest of honor in his house. Get the best robe, put it on him. Second was the ring. This was a signet ring, most likely. When it was given from a father to son, from a king to a prime minister, it signified, it granted the transfer of authority. And so the son just wants to be a servant in the kingdom, but the father gives him the authority of sonship in his house. So the best robe and a signet ring. And then he puts shoes on his feet. Sandals, uh, shoes were a luxury at that time. They were, they were worn by free men. They were never worn by slaves. And so he's saying, I'm not going to treat you like a slave, a servant. No, you're free. And he welcomes him back into the family, just like he never left. And, and then he's not done. There's a meal. There's meat. Look at verse 23. And bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and he began to celebrate. And I don't want to offend anyone here. Friends, just so you know, a party isn't a party unless there's steak. <laughs> and for them, a meal with meat was extremely rare, very expensive. To, to take a fattened calf was for an extremely special occasion. His son was dead and is alive again. He's lost and is found and he began to celebrate. Do you see that theme again? Once lost is found and they celebrate. And so, friend, if you're here and you've been here for weeks, months, and you realize this morning you've wasted your life in ruin and sin, you need to turn to the merciful arms of God the Father. He is tender and compassionate. And you can come to him without any fear. He will not bring out the list to chastise you. You come in confession and repentance, and he won't scream at you. He won't bring it back out and just point at all the ways you failed. He'll receive you because of Jesus Christ. Because of what Christ has done. And so, friend, you need to follow the example of the younger son. It's a good example here in verses 18 and 19 of confession of what it looks like. And you go to God. There is a condition that's worse than death. It's to be lost. There's a condition that's better than life, and it's to be found. So now we want to stop, right? We should close in prayer. This is really good. Kind of charged up today. I don't know if you can tell. It's a really good story. The gospel gets me going. This is really good. We should stop, right? The story's not done. There's another lost son. Look at verse 25. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house... He heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked him, what are these things meant? 
And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he received him back safe and sound. Now stop right there. What should have been the elder brother's response? You would think it should be joy. It should be happiness. The, the lost brother is finally home, but that's not what he does. In verse 28, he was angry and refused to go in. And his father came out and entreated him. The word used here for angry is carrying the idea of swelling, settled anger that rises up like sap in a tree in a hot day. He's boiling in anger. And he absolutely, absolutely refused to go in. And the father humbles himself to go out to this lost son. He entreats him. He's, he's begging him to come in, to join the celebration. But he refuses. He won't join the banquet. Doesn't this sound familiar? You see why chapter 15 follows chapter 14? You've been paying attention this last chapter and a half. He refuses the invitation. And he says in verse 29, and he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I've never disobeyed your command. You hear the, the relationship, the perceived relationship that he has with the father? I've served you. Literally, he's saying, I've been slaving for you. His relationship with his father is so distorted, it's broken. To him, his father's house was a house of bondage. He says, I've never disobeyed your command. He views his father as a command giver. I've always done what you've asked. That I've always done it. I've earned your trust. I've earned your approval. I've been faithful. He refused any intimacy with the Father. And what we hear from his own words in the story is he wanted to earn his relationship. See, the elder brother, I'm sure, I'm sure was a respected man in his community. He was exemplary. He was obedient. He was a dutiful son. He was dependable. He was steady. He was industrious. He was thrifty. And he had a high sense of moral rightness. And he wanted things to be fair. He wanted his fair share. After all, He'd earned it. Right? He says, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, he, he won't even say my brother, when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. Elder brothers, Pharisees, are experts at confessing the sins of others and extremely poor at seeing their own sin. The elder brother couldn't enjoy the father's intimacy. For him, this was a work relationship and he wanted his due. I've served you, Father. I've obeyed all of your commandments. I didn't ask for my share like that, that brother of mine, that other son. No, I stayed and I worked for you. I did all that you asked. Why does he get a party? And I'm out here with nothing. The elder brother should be a litmus test for regular church goers like you and me. 
how many of us have a difficult time detecting the fault in the elder's brother's thinking? You need to be honest. You've read this story before. You heard the response the first time. Are you in agreement with the elder brother? Do you believe there's a smidge of truth that you want to try to defend? And do you really need to test yourselves this morning? I fear that some of you here might say, yeah, it seems like the elder brother might have some legitimate complaints here. If you say that, if your heart regularly runs to defend your resume to God, you're not getting what Jesus is teaching here. And you're still thinking that you can earn your way to heaven. And this distorts your view of Christianity. It obscures your view of who God is. You cannot earn your relationship with God. We all come to the Father the way of the younger brother. All of us. Jesus didn't come to earth to get more people to do work because he was unable to do it himself. He didn't come and place an ad in the paper looking for people to work for him. He didn't come for slaves who just wanted to do all of his commands. He came for souls, for sons and daughters. He came for our redemption. He came to save you. Verse 31 here, we end this parable. He said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. The punchline of this parable is in verse 32, and the ESV got it wrong. The New American Standard got it right. It, says we sh- it should say, but we had to celebrate. It required necessity to celebrate. He was lost and is found. Like the people in chapter 14, 16 through 20, who refused the invitation to the great banquet, so the elder brother refuses to join the dinner party for his brother who once was lost and is now found. And the point of all of chapter 15 was to put the spotlight squarely on the Pharisees. That's the point of all these parables in this chapter. Will they drop the charade of trying to earn their salvation and accept it through Jesus Christ? The the parable then informs the Pharisees and scribes that they, they had the same sympathy, the same reaction as the elder brother, which was not in step with the Father and with the heavens and with the angels. They are the elder brother. They would not join the great meal. They're content on getting their own way to heaven, which would lead them to hell. I mean, what a great reversal at the end of this parable. The younger brother is inside at the great banquet, and the elder brother is outside, refusing to come in. And how sad it is. They had honestly toiled their whole lives to keep all of God's commandments. And like the elder brother, they were proud of their record. But listen, friends, it never brought them any joy in their life. They were joyless people. And as Christians, we should be joy-filled people. 
It's good to celebrate. It's good to rejoice at what God's doing. What, what makes God glad? What makes God rejoice? Friend, do you understand what brings joy to God? It's when sinners who were once dead are now alive. Sinners who were once lost but are now found. That's what brings God joy. God seeks the lost and rejoices over the found, and so should we. Yet they don't understand grace. This elder brother and the Pharisees, they cannot comprehend the grace of the Father. See, if they had truly known God, they would have been out there searching for the younger brother. They would have been spending their time with sinners and tax collectors. They would look to serve those who are hurting, who are ostracized in the community. And what we learn from this is that we need a better elder brother than this one. And Jesus is the better elder brother. He paid the cost of redeeming those who were lost. He paid for it with his life. And he brings us into the family of God. Ephesians 1 to 5, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. See, in this story, the elder brother stinks. And we need a better elder brother. That's the greatest lesson that I've learned in this, this week, in this chapter. You should really read Tim Keller's book, The Prodigal God, to help you understand this story. See, who should have gone out to look for the elder brother, or the younger brother, excuse me? See, Ed Clowney in his chapter about the parable shares a true story of a young man who was a U.S. soldier missing in action during the Vietnam War, and his, his family couldn't get any word about the missing son. And so the older son flew to Vietnam on his own dime, and he risked his life, and he got a camo on to go into the jungles to search for his brother. And it was said, and, and, and despite the danger, he was never hurt because on both sides of the war, they had heard of him and his dedication to find his missing brother, and they respected his quest to find him. This is what the elder brother should have done. And there's always a cost to bring someone home. There's always a cost to forgiveness. The father knew that there would be a cost for the younger son to be forgiven, to come home. Who paid? Who paid for the robe to be given to the younger brother? Who paid for the ring? Who paid for the, the sandals and the fattened calf? Think about that. Who paid for it? It wasn't the father. Right at the beginning of the story, he, he settles the inheritance between them two, right? The younger son got his share and he went and did what with it? You're with me? He spent it. So the rest goes to the older brother. So who paid for it? The elder brother did. Who sacrificed? Do you see it? The elder brother pays. There's always a cost in redeeming something. And we need a better elder brother than the one listed here. Think of the kind of elder brother that we really need. We need one who doesn't just go to another country to search for us, but one that comes from heaven to earth to find us. We need an elder brother who's willing to pay not just a finite amount of money, but who's willing to pay an infinite cost to save us because our debt is so much greater. 
We deserve to be left out in the cold, to be relegated to the pig pen, to, to be rejected. We, we love ourselves too much. We, we love our own needs and our own wants. And we want what we want and we run from the Father. So there's no way in this story for the younger brother to return to the family without the elder brother bearing the cost. And the better elder brother bore that cost on the cross. See, on the cross, Jesus was stripped naked of his robe and his dignity. He laid aside. On the cross, Jesus gave up his rights to die a criminal's death so that we, we could be brought into God's family freely without any cost to us. And what amazing grace that is. On the cross, Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath toward our sins so that we can enjoy the cup of the Father's joy and celebration. There is no way for the Heavenly Father to gather us together without the expense of the elder brother. And the elder brother in this story was a picture of the Pharisees and scribes, and they were far from Jesus. And the true elder brother Jesus, who came into the world to save us. He was what we needed. God seeks the lost, and he rejoices over the found, and so should we. What does the love of God look like? It's a shepherd who goes to great extremes to rescue one sheep, traveling the wilderness and carrying the animal over his shoulder safely home. It's the sick to her stomach sensation of a woman who realizes that she's lost a coin and nothing will be right until it's found. And so she searches the house top to bottom until it's found. And when they're both found, they throw a party. They rejoice. Just as the sheep contributed nothing to the rescue except for getting lost in the first place, so our only hope of being saved is for God himself to do the searching and rescuing. Friends, your lostness is the only thing that you brought into your salvation. God does the saving. Spurgeon preached about this chapter many times in his life. One sermon uh, titled, Many Kisses for Returning Sinners, says this, "The uh, the, the coming low of God towards penitent sinners is very great. He seems to stoop from his throne of glory to fall upon the neck of a repentant sinner. God on the neck of a sinner. What a wonderful picture. Can you conceive it? I do not think you can, but if you cannot imagine it, I hope that you will realize it. When God's arm is about our neck and his lips on our cheek, kissing us much, then we understand more than preachers or books can ever tell us of his condescending love. Friends, this is amazing grace. We rejoice in the restoration of much lesser things like sheep and coins. And how much more does God rejoice when human beings who are made in his image are returned to him through repentance? Praise the Lord. What amazing grace it is that God seeks the lost and he rejoices over the found. And so should we, friends. We're going to sing Amazing Grace, but I'm going to pray first. Would you join me and pray as I pray? Lord, we we confess 
that we do not always love you as we should. And, and, and sometimes we're quick to give our resume as to why we are worthy of your love and grace and we forget about Christ. We ask that you would work in us an understanding of our state before you and our need for a Savior. Help us to respond like the younger brother and not the elder one. Help us to run to you and not to the world. And we praise you, Father, for the truth of your word, for your outstretched arms that receive us when we've come to you for salvation. And so we pray for those that are here this morning that have never turned to you in faith. That are still living like the younger brother. Going to the world to find satisfaction. And they can't see very far in front of them, but we know the end. I pray that you would draw them to yourself. I pray that you would save them. I ask that you would use us for your honor and glory, that you would use us as we leave this place this week, that you would draw more people to yourself this week. Father, I do pray for, for VBS this year. Our heart's desire as a church is not just to put on a program and just to have activities, but to preach the gospel so that kids and parents can understand and come to know you through faith that we would draw in the younger brothers, that we would draw in the older ones too that think they can work their way to heaven and that you, God, would give faith for them to believe, to turn from their way, their sins, to turn from their trust in themselves and to turn and trust in you alone. May we pray for that this week. May we, our hearts and our minds be set on that, the preaching of your word that would go forth through our, our church in the next few weeks. We do ask for our own lives, too, as we go home to our families and our neighbors and friends. May we be faithful with this. May we rejoice and dwell and celebrate in your gospel and what you've done in us. It is amazing grace that we're saved. And may now we end this time singing of that. For we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.